Okay, we've made our way in uh, the story to the study of Esther, and that's the way the story is usually told. Uh, I'm going to tell it just a little bit differently today, and uh, so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Esther. We're not going to be able to cover all of the ten chapters in any detail, so we're just going to highlight a few things from this particular book. In what someone has called the strange world of the Bible, just have to tell you, Esther is one of the Bible's strangest books. And I say that for several reasons. Uh, One of those is because of some of the strange omissions in the book of Esther. Uh, You probably know that God's name never once appears in the book of Esther. Not once. Not in any form. Uh, Song of Solomon comes close to that. But if you study the Song of Solomon, you can find at least one little potential reference in the Song of Solomon to Yahweh. But you don't find even anything like that in the book of Esther. Uh, not only is, is God's name omitted, uh, there's no reference to the tiny little Jewish nation that's trying to reestablish itself back in the country of Palestine after 70 years of captivity. No mention of that little country and the struggle that it's going through. Uh, not only that, there's no mention of, of praise, no mention of prayer, no mention of worship, no reference to law or the covenant or the temple. All of those things that we would normally expect to find in a book in the Bible, none of them are there, even where we would expect to find them. And it almost looks as if the author has gone out of his way where you would expect to find it to omit it and to kind of keep it hidden behind the scenes. In Esther... The things of God have gone underground. They're invisible. They're not there for the eye to see. Well, that's some of the omissions. Uh, There are also some strange inclusions in this little book, things that we don't find in other books in the Bible. The world's most powerful king, for example, and his kingdom are highly visible. In the short span of 167 verses that make up this book, Esther mentions Xerxes, his title of king, and his kingdom of Persia nearly 250 times. You guess where the emphasis is. No reference to God. All these references, on the other hand, to Xerxes and his kingdom and the earthly king. In addition to that, the book is checkered with all kinds of startling coincidences, things that we don't expect that would happen. It tells us of the Persians casting lots, sort of like our throwing of dice, in order to, to make decisions, even toys with the notion of fate. Esther is, in fact, the Bible's most secular book it is exactly fitting to the 21st century where we like to leave out God we like to omit references to him and we like to look at kingdom and coincidence and circumstance well Esther is a book for today and yet even in its silence Esther wants to tell us that it belongs in Scripture. There's this little phrase. See, in chapter 1, verse 1, my translation reads, This is what happened. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Well, that phrase, this is what happened, uh, in older translations, like the King James Bible, uh, used to be translated, and it came to pass. 
And that phrase, it's a, it reflects a Hebrew phrase that occurs something like 453 times in the Old Testament. And every time you see it, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, it's a connecting or linking phrase. It intends to show us that the story that's just happened now is being added to, and it came to pass in addition to what we've already learned, what we've already studied in Scripture. So Esther wants to tell us that it's also one of those books that's added on to Scripture. In spite of all of its strangeness, in spite of all its outward secular appearance, this little phrase, and it came to pass, tells us that Esther wants to be considered a part of Scripture. Well, if that's the case, then we've got to ask the question, don't we? What is this strange little book doing in the Bible. And I think we can find it uh, if we begin to study the theology of the exiles. And I don't want to scare you away when I say that, but remember three or four things that happened to the exiles, the same kind of things that you know happen to us on a regular basis. For example, uh, the believers in Esther's day, uh, the world had literally turned upside down. The outward kingdom, the kingdom of God, that little kingdom of Israel, that thing that they were dependent upon for so many years, it had just been destroyed. God's people are in exile, and not just in exile, as we're about to see, many of them are actually invisible. You can't find them if you go looking for them. No miracles are being performed on behalf of God's people. Destruction has replaced salvation. And so I think, in light of what's going on here, Esther is raising and answering four questions. A question about the kingdom. Where is God's kingdom? A question about God's people. Who are God's people and how are they supposed to respond in times of difficulty and hardship and destruction? If God's not performing miracles, how does he rule in our lives? And finally, if everywhere we look around us, we only see destruction, what's become of the promises of salvation that God has given to us? I think those are four key themes in the book of Esther that really deserve a second look. So let's start with the first one here. Where in the world, in Esther's day, and in by application in our day, where in the world is God's kingdom? Well... If you look at chapter 1, you can see an outward kingdom for sure. You can see the kingdom of Xerxes. And you can notice a whole bunch of things about it. Look at verse 1 where it says Xerxes, the same Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces. Now that's really kind of interesting. I'm going to show you a map here in just a second of Persia. Persia was actually very similar to the way we've divided our country. We have states and we have counties. And if I wanted to tell you that the United States is big, would I tell you that it has 50 states? Or would I tell you how many counties in all those 50 states all added up, how many counties there are in the United States? Very interestingly, this passage talks about the counties in Xerxes' kingdom. He says there's 127 counties. Now, Now, why would he focus on that? Because he wants to impress us with the size of this kingdom. At the time that Esther was written, this is the largest earthly kingdom ever known to man. This was the big deal. It was the United States of America of its day. This was the powerhouse. This is where everything happened. 
This is where the action is. This Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces. It's sort of like, remember uh, when I took my family a number of years ago to see that very first Star Wars movie. Now, I know I'm dating myself. Star Wars has been around a long, long time. But when we first saw Star Wars, and there was this opening picture, this little spaceship came shooting across the screen, and then all of a sudden this massive, huge hulk of a ship it just started coming and coming and coming and it got bigger and it got bigger and it got wide we had never seen anything like that it was massive it was huge we were thinking is this thing never going to end that's the impression esther wants to leave us with this kingdom of xerxes this thing is huge and he wants us to see it in all of its detail so 127 provinces well, and then he tells us about the extent of, uh, of the wealth of this kingdom, of Xerxes' kingdom. Verse 3 says, In the third year, Xerxes uh, gave a banquet. Now, as near as we can detect, what Xerxes wanted to do, by the way, if you've seen the movie The 300, where the 300 uh, Spartans hold off the Persian army, the Persian army that they're holding off is Xerxes' army, historically. Well, Xerxes was attempting at this point in the story, about three years into his reign, to raise that army. And so he was throwing this huge party for all the officials, anybody that was anybody, a 180-day, six-month party, in order for them to see that he could pull it off, and so that they would join with him, and so that they would begin this undertaking, this massive military undertaking, as nearly as we can tell. He was showing off all of his wealth. And so he had a party that lasted 180 days, and then he had a second party that lasted seven days. That was for the people in the White House. And while the people in the White House had their little seven-day party, not to leave anybody out, even the wives, the women of the leaders in the White House, they all had their little seven-day party as well. You can see that down in, what is it, I think, in verse, uh, verse uh, 9. Uh, where uh, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet. And, and at that time, King roll, rolled out all of his wealth, all of the gold, all of the... I mean, he just showed off everything that he had. So we see the size of this kingdom. We see its wealth. But I, I, notice something else about this kingdom. It's this massive command structure. Everything is done by law. You have to pass a law for everything. You have to have a regulation for everything. You have to have permission to do anything. So look at some of these commands that are given. Look at verse 8. By the king's command, each of the guests that were invited to these banquets were allowed to drink with no restrictions. Now think about that. You have to be commanded to allow you to drink freely. Command. That's a key word that's there. In verse 10, we see it again. After everybody had gotten well filled with the, the wine that they were drinking, Xerxes wants to show off another piece of his kingdom, another part of the beauty of his kingdom. And so he calls for his queen. No, he doesn't call for her. Do you see the word in verse 10? He commanded that the seven eunuchs go get her and bring her to him. In verse 12, we're told that Vashti refused the command. There's that word again. Command all the way through. Now, we don't know why Vashti refused the command. We're not told that. What we do know from history is that she could be pretty cruel and uh, she could be pretty domineering herself. She was the daughter of a general of Persia. 
before she had married. Uh, she was also, she had uh, one of the mothers of a lover of Xerxes mutilated for that act, and she had 14 young men buried alive in an act of religious devotion to her pagan god. So she, got, she was used to getting her way, and, and so, you know, everybody in this story is somebody that has authority. They're all powerful. She's commanded. She says no. So then in verse 15, the king Xerxes asks, what now does the Persian law command? He has to have a command in order to be able to act. And then uh, the uh, advisors to the king, they all begin to search the law, and, and they're really quite concerned. You see, if word gets out that one of the royal women have disobeyed the king's command, well, then no man anywhere in the kingdom will be able to command his wife or his household. And so they become really quite concerned about the command. And so, as men are wont to do, they issued a command that all the women would obey their commands, and I'm sure that won friends and influenced people. So seven references in 14 verses to this command structure. We're supposed to see that's how this kingdom operates. So Persia was a magnificent and crushing, massive, wealthy, grinding bureaucracy. Xerxes' kingdom was like the employment policies that I once read about. Sick days. We will no longer accept a doctor's statement as proof of sickness. If you're able to go to the doctor, you're able to come to work. <laughs> Bereavement days. Absence in case of your own death is accepted. However, we require two weeks' notice, and it's your duty to train your replacement. Restroom use. To cut down on time wasted for bathroom breaks, those whose name begins with A will go from 8 to 810, B's will go from 810 to 820, and so on through the alphabet. If you're unable to go on your time, it will be necessary to wait until the next day when your time comes again. In extreme emergencies, you may swap your time with a co-worker. However, both employees, supervisors must approve this exchange in writing. We care about you, and we want you to have a positive employment experience. Thank you for your loyalty to the company. Have a nice day. That's the kind of kingdom Xerxes oversaw. You had to get a command or regulation or rule or permission to do anything. That's Xerxes. In Esther's day, the dominance of first Assyria and then Babylonia, and then finally Persia had impressed the whole world that true power lie in political influence and might. That's where the real power brokers were. God, well, he makes little difference. So it's no accident that the book of Esther leaves the name of God out of the book because that's what everybody else was doing. Everybody was omitting God for their thinking. God was not a world player on the scene of action. So Esther focuses instead on the wealth and the splendor and the glory of Persia and its current king Xerxes. That's where the action is. And from all appearances, God isn't needed. Is he? Or is he? You see, I think the way we're invited to read this book of Esther is sort of as a reverse mirror reading. Let me show you a little chart here. I've showed you what we see. Now look at what we don't see. 
We've seen man's kingdom as highly visible and seemingly victorious and ruled by law and without God, therefore, it has indignity like the way it treated Vashti, injustice and the will of a powerful elite like the seven rulers and submission was always enforced. Well, by re reading that in reverse, don't you get a feel for God's kingdom? Now think about it. God's kingdom always has been ultimately invisible, hasn't it? God's kingdom is apparently defeated. Christ rules from the cross, doesn't he? Uh, rather than be ruled by law, we're ruled by grace. And under God, through his gracious rule, we're given dignity and justice and universal shalom, which stands for peace. And submission isn't enforced. It's invited. That's what this book of Esther wants us to do. It wants us to look through the externals, and it wants us to see beyond the visible, and it wants to see with the eye of faith those things that are behind the external reality. It wants us to be able to see the true kingdom of God. You see, God's kingdom, the shape of it may change. It may take one shape in the Old Testament and another shape in our day and age and another shape in the future when Jesus comes to establish a kingdom. It may take different shapes throughout history, but whatever its outer shape, the essence of the kingdom of God remains just like this. Isn't it true? Where do you find God in your life? Isn't it when your own kingdom comes crushing and you're sitting alone in the dark of the night and God invisibly comes with a quiet touch and puts his hand on your shoulder? Isn't that where you experience the kingdom of God? Isn't it after you've done something wrong and you're expecting accusation and judgment and recrimination, the Holy Spirit speaks a word of grace into your life? Isn't that the kingdom of God? And isn't it wherever you find somebody else which demands submission to a rule or an outer performance, the Spirit of God comes and gives you dignity? by inviting you to be a part of this kingdom. Wherever you see those things, look there. There's the kingdom of God. Where in the world is God's kingdom? Right where it's always been. Exposing all of our self-made empires and calling us to see and to believe. So that brings us to the second thing in the book of Esther. What are the main challenges in this kind of secular world that are facing God's people. Well, in chapters 2 through 4, Esther's attempting to outline the three basic challenges. It's interesting uh, that uh, it occurs in the course of a family. Uh, in, in some ways, families uh, are, are like kingdoms, and in some ways, families are like, you know, those structures that rule over us. But when families break down, uh, there was a uh, they typically assume one of three postures. Uh, they assume uh, people in a family that breaks down will assume something that uh, a family systems theory calls anxious non-presence. I'll go along to get along. My family is broken down. Everything's falling apart. And so, you know, I'll just kind of invisibly fall into the background. Isn't that what happens in chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7 with Esther? Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem in Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon's time. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, 
whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther. And then the key verses in verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Where are the people of God when the kingdom falls apart? One group of the, quote, people of God tend to go other, underground. They hide their identity. They try to go along to get along. They're assimilated by their culture. That seems to be the picture of what's happening to Esther at this point in the story. Or there's the other uh, option that we have, an angry overpresence, I call this. And you see it in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then again in verses 5 and 6. Uh, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of the Hamadatha, the Agagite, and elevated him, giving him a seat of honor higher than all the nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why is the question we're supposed to ask? Why wouldn't Mordecai honor Haman, who had been exalted? Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, it's because he was an Agagite, and if you study the Old Testament, the Agagites were always the enemies of God's people. And wherever uh, you saw an Agagite, you were supposed to destroy them according to the Old Testament. And so wasn't Mordecai doing the appropriate thing. Now that's one line of the story. But it's really interesting that there's another line to the story that wherever you saw an Agagite, Agagites tended to come into uh, visibility when the people of God were doing something wrong. God used them as instruments to ch chasten his people, to discipline, discipline his people whenever they were making mistakes. And so the appearance of an Agagite here is supposed to tip us off that, yeah, it's not good to be an Agagite, but there may be something wrong also with the people of God. And, and what about just him being exalted in this position would cause Haman, or would cause Mordecai to act in this way. And I would like to suggest it's just because basically he was being nationalistic, at least at this point in the story. He's given no other reason to reject the exaltation of uh, Haman. The third one, third thing that uh, uh, Friedman mentions is that we have this possibility of what he calls a non-anxious presence. I got to tell you, though, that whenever I hear the expression non-anxious presence, it makes me feel more anxious than, than anything else. I feel more inadequate uh, than anybody to be a non-anxious presence uh, when I know inside that I'm anxious. Anyone who does not experience anxiety, this, uh, this pastor says, in the face of heartache and chaos is either healthier than I can ever hope to be or dead to the world. What I have found is the first step to coping with anxiety is to give yourself permission to feel it. And now I'll show you this. Rather than non-anxious presence, I think faithful presence is what God's people are called to. The way through pain is not around it, but right through it. Our faith exists to help us confront the scariest things under the sun. Things like the explosion of dreams, the hard edge of suffering, and the magnet of death. 
I don't think it makes much sense to try to pretend these things don't make us anxious. Fear and trembling are part of faith. Our task is to follow hard after God no matter what. So this is my life verse in the Bible. It's, it's from the book of Nehemiah. Some of you have heard me talk about it. Nehemiah uh, is, present, is standing before the king and the king says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. That's my life verse. I was very much afraid. You walk into difficult circumstances. You walk in and you meet hard realities. You meet people that you don't know how to cope with. And isn't that the truth? I was very much afraid. And what do you do in the midst of that fear? Backing back up again. I'm not ready to move yet. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered. I like that. Nehemiah prayed. And he engaged God in the most God-honoring way. He knew how at the time. He didn't try to become invisible. He didn't hide himself. He didn't become angry, over-presence, and aggressive and try to prove how strong he was. He just exercised the faithful principle of following God in the best way he knew how. I think that's what Esther is teaching us. The people of God should do. Which brings me to my third question. In this secular circumstance that Esther is painting for us, what is the means of God's rule? Now think about that. When Israel was redeemed during the time of Exodus, God by and large worked by miracle. And so there were those plagues upon the Egyptians, and then there was the parting of the Red Sea, and then there was the guidance through the wilderness by the pillar of fire and, and uh, uh, by day and uh, uh, flame... Uh, uh, Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Miracle is the way God ruled his people. Now, later on in Israel's history, from the book of Deuteronomy through the book of Kings, those miracles tend to go into the background. They tend to disappear. It's not that God can't still perform them, but he tends now to speak through the prophet's voice, prophetic voice. Just study the scripture. Listen to the words of the prophets. Figure out what it is that the prophets are attempting to say. That seems to be the way God moves in that second phase. But now when we come to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, we don't see any miracles. We hear very little of the prophetic voice. What we really begin to see now is the awesome providence of God. God beginning to move behind the scenes in invisible ways. You can see it in chapter 6. In chapter 6... Uh, God's providence shows itself up in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And as we found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate the king. And he asked the question, what's been done to reward these men? And discovered that nothing has been done to reward them. And so he says, well, I need to do something about that. And just at that time, it just so happens now that Haman walks in and becomes the rewarder. Now all of those things, a sleepless night, 
Kings have a lot that they can do on a sleepless night, especially a king like Xerxes. He had his harem. He had all kinds of entertainment. He had any number of things that he could do. But in the providence of God, instead of doing that, he picks up a book of Chronicles, some unfinished business. And and it just so happens that he starts to read through this book of Chronicles at that place that mentions an unforgotten reward. And it just happens at that time of the unforgotten reward that he sees Mordecai's name mentioned there and Mordecai. Mordecai is to be exalted. All of those things are just this coincidental, circumstantial happenings, or are they? Maybe that's the way God is primarily ruling in our day and age. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't perform miracles. And we certainly always shelter everything under the inspired word of God. But we have teachers of the church rather than prophets in the church. And those teachers, by and large, lead us to study Scripture to examine how God is leading us in the everyday, ordinary course of providential events in our life. I like the way commentator Karen Jobes has put it. Do we have that quote from her that starts with, What a great God we serve. Let's go to that quote. Do we have that? We don't have that quote. Let me read this for you then. What a great God we serve, Karen Job says. There it is. What a great God we serve. Any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great and so powerful that he can work through ordinary events. Think about it. God delivered an entire race of people because the king had a sleepless night. In our days, in Esther's, God's care and protection seldom come by mighty miracles, but with the unfolding circumstances of each day, tiny miracles of God's providence that direct our steps. Of course, not all of life's circumstances are pleasant. Tragedies occur. Life can be ugly and destructive. The death of a loved one, serious illness, wayward children, broken relationships, shattered hopes. None of these things is good in itself. Yet even in the worst of life's circumstances, God is working to fulfill his perfect promises. I think that's one of the things that the book of Esther is attempting to teach us. That as tough as life can be, when our kingdoms come crashing down, and, and when we can barely find the people of God around us sometimes, that we can depend on God's perfect providence see us through and that brings me to the last question we'll conclude with this what are the prospects of salvation what are the prospects of salvation I think Esther gives us a marvelous picture of this now when I study through Esther I see three things happening here I think Mordecai is an Adam figure Mordecai makes a decision that impacts a whole race of people and brings them under condemnation and ultimately would have brought them into destruction, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He brought his whole family, this whole race of mankind, under condemnation, and ultimately it would end in destruction if there hadn't been some kind of interference on God's part. Mordecai equals Adam. I think Haman equals the enemy of God's people in all of his forms in the Old Testament, and throughout all of history, and ultimately Satan, I, I think he's showing a hateful pride. He wants nothing more than take advantage of, of Mordecai's decision. And he wants to destroy God's people. Well then, who does Esther stand for? 
This may surprise you a little bit, but this is one of those places in the Old Testament, I think, where we have a feminine Christ picture. I think Esther, in this story, is a representative of the work of Jesus Christ. And she does three things that brings her forth as a Christ figure. First, in chapter 4, verse 16, and you remember the verse, when she's confronted with a decision, are you going to help your people or are you not? She says, I will, and if I perish, I perish. See it there in chapter 4, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. I call that the principle of sacrifice. From the very moment that Queen Esther is prepared to sacrifice herself, all the elements of the Esther story begin to combine smoothly and actually start to work toward a saving good end. The principle of sacrifice. And then in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 of the Esther story, uh, then Queen Esther, uh, Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request for, and here's the key phrase, I and my people. Remember early in the story, she was denying her association with her people. Now she's come forth. She's willing to sacrifice herself for her people by identifying herself with her people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He says, I am willing to sacrifice myself for you. I will identify myself with you. Your sins become mine. My righteousness becomes yours. The principle of identification, I think Esther holds that up for us. Esther stumbled in this direction, but once she did, her life began to count. And then chapter 10, verse 3. The last thing to, to note here under this prospect of salvation. Sacrifice, identification. There's also exaltation. Verse 3 of chapter 10. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, prominent among the Jews, and held in high esteem among his many fellow Jews. Why? Because of the position that Esther had brought him to, because of the actions that she had performed. Um, this principle of uh, being willing to sacrifice yourself, that applies to Jesus for our lives by identifying himself with us so that we can identify with him. And the ultimate end of this whole process leads in our own exaltation in the kingdom of God. So how do we respond when our visible kingdom is shaken, when we find ourselves in exile, when no miracles are forthcoming in our life and destruction looms large? Here's how the book of Esther answers those questions. Look again, it asks, at your vision of the kingdom. Are you seeing what God is intending to you to see? Are you seeing the outward circumstances? Are you seeing the real invisible kingdom? Practice faithfulness. Pray and engage in the most God-honoring way that you know how. Trust in God's wise providence. And remember that sacrifice and substitution, that of Christ, are God's path to glory. I think that's what the book of Esther is attempting to say to us. Make Christ's story ours. Would you join me as we close now in order to pray?
Lord, thank you for this uh, passage in this book of Esther. And as we now worship you, one final word of song, we pray, God, that you receive our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.